Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 25. The 45th talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on July 2nd, 2017 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Jack Crabtree and is being made available to you by Gutenberg College. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. Contributions to Jack Crabtree may be made at www.soundinterp.wordpress.com. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout 17 and 19 Translation, Installments 2017, Numbers 5 and 6, accompany this talk. Continuing on in the book of Hebrews, we're almost at the end. Briefly, by way of review, when we get to chapter 12 of Hebrews, um, the author of Hebrews, Paul, I think, begins a, a description of a litany of people throughout the history of the Bible, the Old Testament, who have believed and have persevered in their belief. They've believed in that which God has promised them. And even though they never saw the fulfillment of that promise, to the end of their life they persisted in believing that God would, would keep his promise. Um, I haven't mentioned this, but I, but I think it's worth talking about the backdrop of that discussion in chapter 12. If you remember, going way back, why is he writing the book of Hebrews to begin with? Um, the Jews who have believed that Jesus is the Messiah in this first century. Um, it hasn't paid off all that well. It has bought them prison, beatings, scourgings, sometimes death. They've been persecuted by the unbelieving Jews of that day, and it's getting pretty difficult for them. Their life has been made miserable by their belief in Jesus, so little by little, they're beginning to drift back to get it reabsorbed into Jewish culture of that time and just leaving that whole Jesus thing behind. Jesus isn't worth it. And it's to those people that Paul is writing the book of Hebrews, encouraging them to, um, to hang in there, to persevere, and to keep believing even through and in the midst of the persecution they're, they're experiencing. Because they're experiencing persecution, there, are, there is a theological, a philosophical question that's kind of bubbling up to the surface in their thinking. How can Jesus be the Messiah? He was just an ordinary mortal human being. So how can an ordinary mortal human being be God's Messiah? That was always a problem to them, but on the force of the witness of the resurrection and the miracles, the, the accounts of the miracles of Jesus, they, will, they were propel, prepared to shelve that question and leave it unresolved and go on following Jesus anyway until they grew weary, until they grew tired of being beat up on and being persecuted. Now, all of a sudden, these intellectual questions that they have are beginning to uh, come back to the forefront of their thinking. 
So a large part of the book of Hebrews is devoted to convincing them that it's completely and totally consistent with the purposes and the predictions of God and the, through his prophets that the Messiah would be a human being. That's particularly, that's completely compatible. An ordinary mortal human being, that's compatible with God's purposes. But there's a second intellectual problem that they have, and he hasn't spent a lot of time on that up till this point in Hebrews, and that is, if Jesus was the Messiah, then where's the kingdom? If Jesus is the king, where's the, where's the kingdom that he's going to establish? Because it sure looks like an evil, stinking world out there to me. Uh, I don't think he did much to fulfill the promises that God made. He, brie- he briefly addresses that in chapter 2. He quotes the psalm and, and about how all things will be made subject to him, and then he just comments We do not yet see all things made subject to him, but we do see him uh, ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. Basically, granted, he has not established the kingdom yet, but he has qualified himself to serve in the role as king when the time comes. Um, Well, notice how relevant what Paul is talking about in chapter 12 is with that as the backdrop. Uh, God has not fulfilled his promises. Well, he, didn't, he hasn't fulfilled any of the promises he made to anybody yet. Uh, Abraham didn't see it. Isaac didn't see it. Jacob didn't see it. Moses didn't see it. Joseph didn't see it. David didn't see it. Right on down the line, none of them have seen the fulfillment of this. And then as we get to the end of that list, remember he says... Uh, and, and this was all because God's purpose, his better purpose, was that we all should see it together. So you, that promise has still not been kept. You and I are going to experience it at the same time that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and everybody else experiences it. When the kingdom of God gets established everybody who is destined for the kingdom of God is going to enter the kingdom of God at the same time. That, that's what he seems to have argued uh, a few paragraphs back. Well, that with, against the backdrop of he can't be the Messiah because I don't see the kingdom of God yet, he's answering that question. No, of course you haven't seen the kingdom of God yet. That was never part of God's purposes to bring in the kingdom of God immediately and directly on the heels of his Messiah. That was never God's intention. It was never his purpose. So we, uh, we get to chapter 12 then, where Paul makes this metaphor of a, of a race, a running race. We are engaged in a running race, and the important thing is that we run the race to the end, that we endure, that we persevere, that we not grow weary and go, I, I can't make it, I'm, I don't want to make it, I don't want to run. This is just not worth it to me. And he's trying to, he's trying to argue in every way that he can, it is well worth it to you, I don't care how weary your legs are, keep them moving, keep them pointed toward the finish line, and keep them moving. Just keep, keep trucking. Then he, uh, he answers Uh, an implicit question, and that is, but why? Why would God make it so hard? 
why do we have to run this race where it takes endurance and it takes courage and it takes stamina and all the things that it requires of us? Why would God do that? And he, and he, and he talks about how because God is the father of our very persons. Our earthly fathers were the fathers of our biological existence, but God is the father of our very essential, eternal persons. And our, our biological fathers trained us to be able to live in this world and to, to prosper and succeed in this world. What is God up to? God is up to training us so that we will be prepared and fit and suited for the inheritance in the world to come. So why is it so hard? Because we're in training. And it's, it's, a, it's a part of God's purposes as well. So then we, if you're alert, you'll notice that I moved the section marker up to uh, before paragraph 86, which we did look at last week. This would be chapter 12, verse 14 and following. With all men pursue peace, even the sanctification apart from which no one will see our Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness by springing up cause trouble, and through it the many be defiled. That there be no one who plays the prostitute, even a vulgar vulgar person like Esau, who sold his own rights as the firstborn in exchange for one single meal. Now you know that indeed afterwards, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For even though he solicited it with tears, he found no place for repentance. Now we looked at that last week, but that was the opening paragraph in this extended exhortation now to persevere uh, in pursuing the promised reward that awaits us. So what are we to pursue? We're to pursue peace. Peace with God, I think, is what he's talking about here. Not peace on earth, but peace with God. Pursue peace with God. How do you pursue that? By understanding, knowing, and believing how that peace gets established. It gets established by a mediator and an intercessor who will advocate to God that he grant us mercy and therefore a place in the eternal kingdom of God. So we need to be right with Jesus. We need to be on his side. We, meet, we need to make ourselves somebody that Jesus will advocate for. That's how we pursue that peace. He says, even the sanctification apart from which no one will see the Lord. And then avoid idolatry. That's the root of bitterness. If we were to go back to Deuteronomy, avoid worshiping other gods and don't, don't play the prostitute. Don't take this valuable inheritance that God has given us and sell it away for something trivial, like a, like a s- simple meal, like Esau did, for some momentary delight or some momentary pleasure. Don't sell something as valuable as our eternal inheritance for something trivial. Okay, so we're continuing on now with that exhortation that we pursue this promised reward that God has held out there for us. And what he's going to do in the next two paragraphs, I'll read both paragraphs here, what he's going to do in the next two paragraphs is um, make a distinction between what you are doing, what you are seeking, if you pursue, if you go back to your Judaism 
and practice the, um, the religious practices of Judaism as opposed to what you are doing if you are persisting in your belief in Jesus the Messiah. The first paragraph is what you're doing if you return to Judaism. The second paragraph is what you're doing if you uh, persist in believing that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay. For you have not come to the mountain which is being sought, which is being sought after, specifically to the burning fire and to the darkness and to the gloom and to the wind and to the blast of a trumpet and to the sound of utterances, with respect to which those who heard implored that no further communication be given to them. Now they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrible was the phenomenon that Moses said, I am terrified. And he was indeed full of trembling. 12.22 Rather, you have come to Mount Zion, even the city of the real and true God, the Jerusalem from heaven, and you have come to myriads of angels in joyful public feasting and celebration, and you have come to the assembly of the firstborn heirs, of those who are enrolled in the heavens, and you have come to the ruler, God over all, and you have come to the spirits of those who, because they were made teleos, were decreed dikaios. And you have come to the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus. And you have come to the blood for sprinkling, which makes a better appeal than that of Abel. Okay. This translation differs in certain significant respects from other English translations that you might have. I'm not going to be able to catch every point, so... If you have a question about why I translated it the way I did, feel free to, to ask me in a second here. The, the basic fundamental difference between these two paragraphs is, is fear and joy. Fear or joyful celebration. So what he's saying is, if you insist on pursuing, your, pursuing the promised reward that God has uh, made available to us, if you insist on pursuing that through obedience to the law of Moses, what, what, do you, what are you buying into? What, what should you expect to experience? Fear. You'll be a slave of fear. If you seek that promised reward by believing in Jesus, what will you experience? Freedom from fear and joyful celebration. It's a, it's a fairly extended way of making the same point that Paul makes in Romans chapter 8. Let me just turn there and read that for a second. In Romans 8, okay, 15, 8, 15, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, if you remember when we were studying through Romans, the point that he's making is if, if I, especially the way the Jewish religion of that day understood their relationship to the Mosaic Covenant, if I'm pursuing the blessing of Abraham by keeping the law of Moses, I, li- I, I live in fear day in and day out. Have I done enough? Have I done it right? Do I need to do more? Was my, were my 
you know, will God accept my obedience here? Will he consider that I have kept the law? I thought I kept the law. Will God grant that I have kept the law? From their perspective, you had to get it right and do it right in order to be rewarded with life rather than death. So you were set up to constantly live in fear that you hadn't done enough and you hadn't done it right. And that was your experience. So in Hebrews, Paul represents, rather dramatically represents that experience that was his experience as a Jew before he believed in Jesus and was the experience of all of his fellow countrymen. He represents that by going back to the historical event of receiving the covenant at Mount Sinai. And he describes that event. What was it like? It was absolutely terrifying. The mountain was glowing and on fire. There was this big black cloud that descended over the mountain and shrouded everything in darkness. There was a a blast of a trumpet sound that deafened your ears. There was an earthquake. I mean, right the whole nine yards, it was a terrifying experience. Such that he says, Moses says, I'm afraid, and he was full of trembling. Well, what that represents for Paul, that historical event, represents for Paul the emotional and psychological experience of anybody in his day who is seeking to secure the blessing of Abraham, the promised reward, by obedience to the Mosaic Covenant. You're going to be terrified. In contrast, and in Romans he said, we're not, uh, we're not slaves of, we don't have a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but why does he call it a spirit of slavery? Think of the master-slave relationship. The master who has absolute control over your life, if he's displeased, can punish you, scourge you, kill you perhaps, and you're, aren't you walking on eggshells? a slave living in relationship to that kind of master, you're constantly living in fear. That's what you are under the Mosaic Covenant. But in Jesus, we are children of God. And then he goes on in that chapter to, to point out what he means is heirs of God. We, we have been adopted as sons. And the, the institution that he's talking about, I think, is Roman adoption, where a patron sees someone that he wants to give his name, uh, resources, status to, and it doesn't have to be biologically related. It's just somebody that he decides, that's a worthy child who will, who will make me proud. I'm going to place my name and my inheritance in him. And he's adopted as a son. When he reaches the age of majority, then he begins to take on the possessions and status and name of the patron. Well, that's what we are to God, Paul says. And the thing about that is, it was completely at the initiative of the patron. The, the, young, the young child, the young boy, didn't earn it, deserve it, uh, do something to to obligate the patron to him. It's the patron simply as a matter of grace deciding to give his inheritance to this particular person. And Paul is saying that's what God has done to us. 
He didn't grant us this inheritance because we deserved it or earned it in any way. He's just given it to us because he is so profoundly merciful and so profoundly gracious. Well, the the nice thing about that relationship is you can delight in what God has given you and you don't need to worry and fear that it's going to be taken away from you because it's not about a matter of being deserved. It's not a matter of being earned. So you can't unearn it and you can't undeserve it because it wasn't deserved or earned to begin with. So that's what his second paragraph is talking about here is the freedom from fear and the, the utter joy and delight in celebration that occurs if you, uh, if you intend to receive your inheritance on the basis of Jesus' intercession for you. Okay, now let's look at the particulars in that paragraph. The the first one is relatively easy because it's just a description. If you go back to the Exodus account, you'll find all of these things uh, described in the Exodus account at the foot of Mount Sinai. You have not come to the mountain which is... Okay, you have not come to the mountain which is being sought after. Um, Your English translations probably have uh, which can be touched, something like that. And... Uh, they're, they're interpreting it as it, you haven't come to a tangible physical mountain. But the reason they're translating it that way is because they're seeing these two paragraphs as a contrast between something occurring on earth and something occurring in heaven. So you haven't come to a tangible mountain. You've come to a spiritual mountain, which is intangible. It's up in the transcendent realm and, and has nothing to do with this earth. I don't think that's right. That's not what he's saying. The, mountain, the Mount Zion that he's talking about in paragraph 88, from verse 22 to 24, that mountain is every bit as tangible as Mount Sinai was. It's a real mountain, and you can touch it. So it makes no sense for him to say, you haven't come, uh, for you have not come to the mountain which is tangible, You've come to the intangible mountain. That's not his point. There's another way to take that, lang- that language. It's the idea of touching. Uh, we ran into it in Paul's speech before the philosophers at Mars Hill. God is close. Let's see, how's, how's he put it? In him you live and move and have your being, and you, you grope for him so that you might find him. The word grope for him is the word that's used here. It's the same, same verb in Greek. The idea is it is sometimes used to describe the actual act of, it's like a blind man trying to find something, and they find it by touching the various things around them. They are looking, they are searching, they're seeking in the only way that's available to them because they're doing it in the dark. They're doing it in darkness. Well, um, the Jews of Paul's day, what, what are they groping for? They're groping for this promised reward by coming to the mountain, to Mount Sinai. That's the one, that's the, that's the way that they seek after this reward, this blessing. I think that's what he means here. 
So for you have not come to the mountain which is being sought after by every other Jew in town, specifically to the burning fire and to the darkness and to the gloom and to the wind and to the blast of a trumpet and to the sound of utterances, with respect to which those who heard employed that no further communication be given to them. If you remember, at one point God was speaking to the whole people of Israel and it was scaring them to death. And they finally got word to Moses. Uh, Moses, would you tell God to shut up? <laughs> He's scaring us. Would you tell him to just speak to you and you can speak to us? Because when he speaks to us directly, we're not having a good time. This is terrifying to us. And, and that is, in fact, what God then did, is he stopped speaking to them directly and spoke to them through Moses. That's what he's referring to with respect to which those who heard employed that no further communication be given to them. Now they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. God, God was made it very clear to them, um, I've got strict boundaries here, and don't you dare presume to encroach upon my ground. Don't you dare do that. And obviously it scared them. That kind of... Uh, that kind of setting of boundaries was terrifying to them. Indeed, so terrible was the phenomenon that Moses said, I am terrified, and he, and he was indeed full of trembling. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. Now we go to the contrasting approach to God. Rather, you have come to Mount Zion, even, even the city of the real and true God. It's literally living God, but... The, um, Living can mean different things in different contexts, but one of the things it means is um, a real and true God, not a phony idol, not a false God, a fake God that you are worshiping in idolatry. He is the real and true God. So in order to capture the sense of what I think he means by living, I translated it real and true. So rather you have come to Mount Zion, even the city of the real and true God, the Jerusalem from heaven. Okay, Uh, most English translations have heavenly Jerusalem, which is fine, but heavenly in what sense? Because it exists up in heaven? No, I don't think so. We're talking about the Jerusalem that is out there in in the future that Abraham was looking forward to, and Isaac was looking forward to, and Jacob was looking forward to, and every last Jew on that list in, in chapter 11, they're all looking forward to having the land that God said he would give to them, having the kingdom that God promised them, with the king that he promised them, with the relationship that he promised them. Because he, relation, he promised them, I'll take you into the land, I will secure you in the land, and I will be your God and you will be my people. We're going to enter into a relationship where you will serve me, you will honor me, you will respect me, you will um, be loyal to me, and I will provide for you and take care of you and protect you and act like your God, just as you will act like my people. Well, the center of that, of course, is going to be Jerusalem, So the Jerusalem from heaven is in contradistinction to the earthly Jerusalem, that is the Jerusalem that's built by the hands of sinful, wicked human beings. The Jerusalem that exists today. The Jerusalem that existed throughout most of history. 
That's the earthly Jerusalem. But the day is going to come where the Jerusalem that is going to exist is going to be the Jerusalem that God promised them, where it will be smothered in righteousness and justice and, uh, and goodness. Remember earlier in chapter 11, talking about Abraham? He, he remained a sojourner in the land that God had given him. He didn't seek to establish a city in that land and take control of the land. Why? Because he was waiting for the kingdom and the city. He was waiting for the city that God was going to give to him, the architect and builder of which was God. That's the Jerusalem that he's talking about here, the Jerusalem who has God as its architect and his end builder. So you have come to Mount Zion, even the city of the real and true God, the Jerusalem from heaven, and you have come to myriads of angels in joyful public feasting and celebration. Just one word in the Greek, um, and it's, it's a Greek word that describes an event where everybody in the city, everybody in the polis, is invited to come and celebrate together, feasting, music, dancing, the whole nine yards, a a universal public uh, celebration of some particular event. What is this event that is being celebrated here? The inauguration of the kingdom of God the fulfillment of God's promise. When God finally brings into being in history that very thing that he's been promising his people for thousands of years without them ever seeing it. But the day has come where he's going to establish that kingdom and that will be a day of incredible celebration. I think it gets represented in the book of Revelation as the wedding feast of the Lamb where Jesus is given as his bride, his people. Uh, They are the bride and he is the bridegroom and there's a wedding feast to celebrate that that event. I think that's what Paul's talking about here, is what Revelation calls the wedding feast of the Lamb. So you've come to myriads of angels in joyful public feasting and celebration. Why angels? I I think... um, I mean, he, he didn't have to describe it as angels because everybody there is going to be celebrating. But I think he calls it angels because the significance of God fulfilling this promise transcends human beings and transcends human history. This speaks to the faithfulness of God to everyone, to all of creation and every one of his creatures. And the angels are just as delighted to see this play out as we will be. So the, the angels are in joyful public feasting and celebration. And you have come to the assembly of the firstborn heirs of those who are enrolled in the heavens. Um, the firstborn here, it's very tempting to make that Jesus, who is the firstborn. The problem is it's plural in the Greek. So I don't think it's talking about the assembly of, the, of those who belong to Jesus, the firstborn. Rather, it's the assembly that's composed of individuals, all of whom are firstborn. Well, firstborn in what sense? 
in that time and place and culture, the firstborn was the one who received the inheritance. So you and I, if we belong to this assembly, if we belong to this group of people, we have been chosen by God to be granted an inheritance, the inheritance that is, is elsewhere described as the blessing of Abraham. It's the promised reward that's being talked about in all of chapter 11 of Hebrews. So if I stand to inherit that, that makes me, if you can dig it, a firstborn. I'm one, I am one of the firstborn. So um, if you come to Mount... If you, if you persist by pursuing belief in Jesus, then you are... Um, you are pursuing being a member of this assembly of the firstborn heirs of God. He alternately describes that of those who are enrolled in the heavens. A lot of imagery in the Bible about a book and whether or not your name is written in the book. That's, I think, the same imagery he's using here. Who are the people who stand to inherit this blessing? those people whose name is in the book. They are enrolled. It says in the heavens, all that means is in the purposes of God, in the uh, incorruptible, unchanging, eternal purposes of God himself. If you are enrolled there, then you are what Paul calls one of the elect. So you are one of those whose whose ultimate destiny is to be a part of this assembly of those people who are firstborn heirs who are going to inherit the promised reward and the blessing of Abraham. And you have come to the ruler, God, over all. I don't know here who he's talking about. Um, Obviously, he could be talking about God, which is the way it certainly sounds, but he may very well be talking about Jesus the Messiah here. That who's going to be in Jerusalem reigning with the reign of God, being the embodiment of God's reign over all things? It's going to be Jesus. He's the ruler. And that's the ruler that we are first and foremost and most immediately going to be, um, going to be confronting is Jesus. Why does he call him God then? Well, if you remember, um, even in the Psalms, the king of Israel every now and then is described as God. God, your God, has anointed me above. Whatever. Well, who, who's the God that his God has anointed him? Well, the king of Israel. He, he bears the title of God precisely because in God's purposes, the, the king of Israel is intended to be the, the very embodiment of God's authority itself. He's to be God in, represented in human form. And so the title God is not inappropriate to such a one. And if it was appropriate for the kings of Israel, how much more appropriate is for Jesus, who is the true king of Israel, the eternal king of Israel, the real king of Israel, not the phony placeholders, that, that you see, read about in history, but the real king of Israel that God had, had appointed and assigned from before the foundation of the earth. So to call him God would be perfectly appropriate. But obviously, it's also appropriate to call God the ruler over all. 
So maybe that is what he means here. That, that's a hard one to sort out. And you have come to the spirits of those who, because they were made teleos, were decreed dikaios. Okay. Um, you have come to make yourself among the number of those people who can be described as spirits who are decreed dikaios because they were made teleos. Okay, what does that mean? Um, to be decreed dikaios is to be pardoned. To not have my sins, my moral depravity, my evil, my wickedness held against me when it comes right down to crunch time. At the judgment itself, when my destiny is going to be determined, will I go to life in the eternal kingdom of God or will I go to condemnation and destruction? At that juncture, uh, every single one of us who faces that judgment is morally depraved and evil and corrupt and unworthy of anything except condemnation and destruction. But some are going to be shown mercy. And those who are shown mercy are decreed dikaios by God. Uh, acceptable. Let, let them in. Um, let them in to, my, to the kingdom. Now, who are those people? who are going to be granted that pardon and that forgiveness, who are going to have their wickedness and their depravity rendered irrelevant to what their destiny is going to be, it's those people who have been made teleos. Okay, what does he mean by that? To be teleos is to be somebody who's achieved their telos, uh, to have achieved that goal or that end that God's activity in their life has sought to achieve. And what is the telos that God hopes to achieve in my life here and now, right now? He, he, want, he wants to bring me to openness and receptivity to God and the things of God. So I have, a, I have, I have achieved God's telos for me if I believe that Jesus is the Messiah if I trust in Jesus' intercession on my behalf, if I hunger and thirst after righteousness, if I grieve and mourn over evil in the world and in my, own very, my very own being. I mean, go right down the Beatitudes, all those things described there. The one who's been made teleos is the one who God has worked magically in their hearts and their spirits and their insides to turn them into the kind of person that the Beatitudes describe, to turn them into a follower of Jesus, a believer in the gospel, and right on down the line. That's what it means to be made teleos. Who's going to be forgiven? Those people. Okay? So, by pursuing um, my promised reward, by seeking to follow Jesus... I'm wanting to be joined with that group of people. I want to become one of them. And you have come to the mediator of, a, of the new covenant. Paul spent a whole lot of time earlier in the book describing the new covenant and Jesus as the mediator of the new covenant. So you have come to the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus. It's Jesus' death and intercession on our behalf that is the basis 
for God's mercy being shown to any human being. No one will be shown mercy apart from Jesus saying, Father, will you take Jack into your kingdom? I know he doesn't deserve it. I know he doesn't, you know, I know he deserves to be destroyed, but I want him in my kingdom. It's having Jesus speak for me and want me and intercede for me uh, that makes him the basis for anyone receiving the blessing. That's the mediator of the new covenant. And you have come to the blood for sprinkling. Sprinkling was the ritual in the temple uh, where a way of appealing for mercy was to sprinkle blood on various parts of the priest or the worshiper or the altar or the um, mercy seat. You, you spread or sprinkled blood on it. You have come to the blood for sprinkling, which makes a better appeal than that of Abel. Now, that, that's an allusion, of course, to Genesis. In the Genesis account, uh, remember, Cain killed Abel, and the text says something like, I'm going by memory here, but something like, and the blood of Abel cried out from the ground, I believe, something like that. The blood of Abel cried out from the ground. doesn't say what it cried out, just that it cried out. But in the context, isn't it pretty clear what the blood of Abel is crying out for? God bring justice. This man has been unjustly and wickedly murdered. I want justice uh, for what has happened to me. So that, that's what the blood of Abel cries out. What does the blood of Jesus say? God forgive them. God have mercy. It's, it's actually an appeal to God for mercy on behalf of the worshiper. So that's what he means by the blood of, um, for sprinkling, which makes a better appeal than that of Abel. Okay. Um, let me go one more paragraph, and then I'll let you ask some questions. 1225. See to it that you not rebuff the one who makes the appeal. Now, most of your English translations have make sure that you don't ignore or neglect the one who is speaking, the one who is speaking. And for if those in the land did not escape when they rebuffed the one who warned them, all the more will we not escape the ones turning away from him who is in the heavens. Because he says him who is in the heavens at the end of that, they take the one speaking as speaking from the heavens. I think that misses the whole point. I think that translation really steers us in the wrong direction. He's just finished saying, I, I, I translated it in the paragraph above as making an appeal. Jesus, you have come to the blood for sprinkling, which makes a better appeal than that of Abel. It's literally in the Greek speaks or says or speaks. The same word that he uses in in 12.25, see to it that you not rebuff or neglect or ignore the one who is speaking. Well, since he's just talked about the one speaking in the, in the very verse before that, being the blood of Jesus speaking to God, appealing to God for mercy, isn't what he's saying is, see to it that you not rebuff Jesus who is appealing to God for mercy on your behalf through his blood, through his death. Don't ignore him. 
Don't neglect him. Don't shun him. Don't, don't turn him away. See to it that you not rebuff the one who makes that appeal. For if those in the land did not escape when they rebuffed the one who warned them, what's he talking about? Remember, uh, God brought them out of Egypt, and he took them, a rather circuitous, uh, dilly-dallying route, into the promised land after 40 years, but he brought them into the promised land. He gave them the land. They established kingdoms in the land. But, event, but the warning all along from Moses on, if you look at Deuteronomy, he warns them over and over and over again. Make sure you do the ordinances and the statutes and the whatever commandments that I'm giving you today, lest you be vomited out of the land. The land is yours if you will be my people. And keep my covenant. But if you don't, I'm going to kick you out of the land. I'm going to take you out of the land. Well, that people did not escape. They did not heed that warning and they did not escape. For if those in the land did not escape when they rebuffed the one who warned them, and I think it's, it's either God or Moses, I'm not sure it makes any difference, but by rebuffing Moses, you are rebuffing God. By rebuffing God... They did not escape God's judgment and God's chastisement against them. For if those in the land did not escape when they rebuffed the one who warned them, then all the more will we not escape the ones turning away from him who is from heaven. Well, who is that? It's Jesus. A number of times, especially in the Gospel of John, he talks about, I came down from heaven. Um, It's a way of describing his relationship to the purposes of God. But he came down from heaven. Um, That's where he was from, if you will. And I think that's what, what this is referring to. So if the people of Israel did not escape judgment for ignoring Moses, you think you're going to escape judgment by ignoring Jesus? Who is way more important and may, way more significant in his status and his role than Moses could ever hope to be. Okay, let me, let me stop there for any questions or comments you might have. That was a, a bunch. Thanks, Jack. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a question about the fear contrasted with joy. Uh-huh. Um, taking what you said about the kind of psychology of living with this fear under the Mosaic Covenant. What do you make of verses like the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom or he was a righteous man, he feared the Lord? Is that the same kind of fear that's being talked about? Is it a wholly negative thing? Just some I, I think it's that. a different sense of fear. Everybody who's right, in fact, he's going to use uh, coming up here, He's going to talk about with awe and reverence, how we seek to serve God with awe and reverence. Fearing God is just part of having a right understanding of who God is, fear in that sense, where we, we recognize that he's n- not anyone we should um, trifle with. You don't play with God. This is utterly serious, our, our existence that he gave us. And our relationship to our creator is a very, very serious matter. It's not trivial. 
So there's a certain kind of sobriety and... What's the word I'm looking for? Well, awe and reverence and fear if you understand that if I should cross the line into turning God into something trivial, the consequences are, are, are going to be pretty bad, <laughs> pretty negative consequences. So I fear those negative consequences of not taking God seriously. So that's going to be a part of every righteous person's attitude toward God. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about in Romans and here in Hebrews is trembling, cowering in fear because um, as, I can, as I understand what God is requiring of me, it is, it is a, a condition that I can't meet. And so I, I'm terrified that I'm going to be destroyed by God. In contrast to having God say to, come to you and say, I'm going to give you a gift. I have given you a gift. I'm going to take you into my kingdom, period. The, the burden is lifted when I know that the outcome, completely out of my hands, has been, has been secured for me by God. So is the author suggesting that that was something new that is sort of kind of brought by Jesus to yeah. the people? I, th- I think so. It, it's clearest in the book of Galatians, but in the book of Galatians, it becomes quite clear that Paul understood the, the insight into God's purposes that you got through the Mosaic Covenant was not complete enough and was not clear enough to be able to grant us that kind of freedom. It was only when Jesus came that finally we understood how it was that God intended to, um, to deal out his blessing to mankind, and then, then there's freedom. So in Galatians, he talks about how we were, enslave, ensla- we were slaves under the law, but then when faith came, that is the one in whom we have placed our faith, we, we were set free from our slavery to the law. So yeah, I think he does. If I could ask just one more question. Mm-hmm. Um, why does he use the perfect tense to talk about, so he says, you have not come, but you have come to this, and then later he's, he's going to say uh, something like, um, let us be grateful for receiving. So like, it sounds like this has, is something that has already been given or granted, but is... Like you're saying, the context points to something future, this mm-hmm. future mm-hmm. Um, inauguration of God's kingdom. Mm-hmm. Well, look at the perspective that he's writing from. That these are people who have ostensibly already made a decision to follow Jesus and be his disciples. So I, th- I think he's writing these two paragraphs from the vantage point of, if you have decided to follow Jesus and accept his intercession as the basis upon which your your destiny hinges, then you have, perfect tense, you have decided this and you have joined this group and you have come to this group and, and so on and so forth. You haven't done this other thing. So I think that's the the primary reason for that. What, what was the second part of your question, though? Um, 
I was just uh, saying it looks like he kind of uses the perfect tense or something like like it to talk about a future thing later on as well. But. Yeah, okay, because what has happened in the past is you made a decision to be a follower of Jesus, and that's where the tense is coming from. When you made that decision in the past, uh, then, you, then you have come to this. Now, what he's describing is a future event because what you have done is you put yourself instead to be a part of the assembly of the firstborn, to be uh, a spirit of, of those who have, are dikaios because they have been made teleos right on down the line. That is, you, you have made a decision that's going to put you among this group of people rather than the other group of people. It's like that's what you've signed up for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I found the other. It says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, which in English sounds like you've received it already. Yeah, you, you have, the, more I, the more I study, the more I translate, the more convinced I am that we have to be really careful of the Greek tenses um, and therefore take the tenses in your English translation with a grain of salt. It, it's the translator who's making that decision. It's not, it's not necessarily the Greek text um, because I think tense is at least 50% determined by context and the argument and the sense of what's going on, not by the form of the, of the word. Because you, you find that the present Greek form sometimes has a future sense to it, sometimes have a, has a past sense to it, and that it would be perfectly appropriate to translate it into an English future tense or an English past tense or an English present tense. All those things are available. Um, and so what determines what tense we translate it into in English is ultimately going to be determined more by the context and the nature of the argument and the nature of what's being said than it is by the form in the Greek. So uh, we, we just have to keep that in mind. and don't, don't put too much weight on something like how the English translator translated the tense of the verb. Jack, I would bother you by asking you to answer the same question, not in tenses, but uh, say if Paul is on the one hand saying that Jack is the chaos, and he demonstrates that because of his telos, then is he doing a paradigm shift when he says, Jack, tremble in fear about what you're doing? There's a paradigm shift there, or maybe there's a tense shift. How can he say both things the classic argument, of course, the works of faith. The, the what? The works of, Peter says you have to have works. Yeah. And that, I think, is works of faith, to, to be positive. But that's what Paul's asking, too. You'd be better tremble, Jack, and keep demonstrating the works of faith. I think that's telos, maybe. Yes? Right. Yes. Yeah. So, so go ahead. Now, let me see. I, let me see if I'm following you. Uh, in Philippians, Paul says, "Work out your faith in, with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure." Something like that. I, I've never studied or translated. I'm just going by English translation. But you, you see in their attention. On the one hand, my destiny is secure uh, to, because this is a gift from God. 
because this had nothing to do with me from the get-go. It was entirely at the initiative of my creator who graciously decided to pick me and take me into eternal life. That's the paradigm of the sovereignty of God. Exactly. Now? Yeah, from the sovereignty of God, exactly. But from the standpoint of the freedom of the human will and the freedom of human decisions, how is that going to happen? I'm going to keep choosing to pursue my sanctification. I can't... I, no one is going to enter the kingdom of God who told God, I'm not interested in your stinking stuff, go to hell. That you, th- those are completely incompatible with each other. So if God has chosen me, then I'm secure in that on the one hand, but what that does is it provides a basis upon which I go to work to make certain that I continue to walk with my feet straight down the road toward the goal and I don't, I don't stray off in any way. There so that's go. working out my salvation with fear and trembling, I think. Yeah, you know I pursue the paradigm shift, and there you go. You figured it out. Good job. Right. Okay. We'll pick this up. We'll have a couple more weeks, and we should be done with the, the letter.